Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We've got two more hours of going against the grain before we go into a long weekend. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we don't have a lot to get to. Before that, uh, we... Whew, I've got a list of things we're going to talk about in the show, and it, it runs the gamut. We're going to talk about Joe Biden's marijuana pardons, and I have a funny story about that for you in just a minute, John. Um, we're going to talk about some pleas that I think are pretty significant when it comes to these January 6th trials. Pleas, uh, guilty pleas to charges of seditious conspiracy um, that, you know, I think say something. Mm-hmm. About the, I agree. you know, say something about the the nature of that protest, and that I think what what is you know becoming clear that you most people you had most people there wandering around protesting, uh, getting involved in a riot, getting sort of overexcited, uh, and then you have a core group of people who who actually had some kind of plan, and I think uh, you know we have to acknowledge both of those things when we talk about this, yep, I think. Agreed. Uh, and also how many of that core group of people were uh, speaking to the FBI or working for the FBI or getting paid by the FBI. That is also another uh, issue to it, continue to explore. It'll be 30 years explore. before we are able to determine all that. Can't wait. <laughs> we are going to talk about uh, U.S. lawmakers suggesting different kinds of retaliation against OPEC and against Saudi Arabia for their plans to cut oil production next month and also I mean I haven't seen anyone invoking raising prices on the US but that's just a little a little bit of lemon juice in that one. Well did you happen to see the the piece in the New York Times today by Friedman who I can't stand no, normally. God, what did Tom Friedman have to um, say? But he he said that that Putin and MBS have humiliated us. I mean, you know. I actually agree with him this time. It is a little uh, certainly MBS it is a little embarrassing. Yeah. Um We'll talk about these negotiations underway in Prague as EU nations try to figure out how they are going to manage over the winter with this energy crisis and the different, uh, you know, possible solutions that are under discussion. I, because it's Friday, I'm indulging myself in a story about the F-35 and what a boondoggle it is that I'm pretty excited about. Uh, We're going to talk about some Assange rallies happening over the weekend in a number of cities. We are going to talk about the latest in the fight between Donald Trump and the Department of Justice on the role of the special master and also these uh, suggestions that perhaps there are yet more classified documents that have yet to be uncovered. Uh, We are going to talk about some accusations that Northern California communities are discriminating against Asian Americans. Right. Um, There's, I want to talk a little bit about how, how we are to understand the couple of big reports from anonymous U.S. intelligence sources about, uh, you know, aspects of the conflict in Ukraine, uh, especially because, you know, they're, they're so anonymously sourced as to make it impossible to understand who signed off on this, who didn't, even what office it's coming from, right. you know, is this civilian or military? And what does that mean, right? It sort of feels like at the end of the day, all you can say is, okay, so they, somebody wants us to believe this. And why is that? Which is, uh, I don't know, it just, it, it, you have to look at these things through so many different lenses that it's easy to forget one. Yes. And it sometimes can be hard to figure out which one is the most important. Yes. I want to talk about that a little bit. I also wonder why the State Department has sent me a notice uh, that they are possibly anticipating some unrest in Central Asia that had not been on my radar 
And I'm going to see if it is on the radar of our first guest. We'll see. Um, and I also want to just shout out the the lever or the lever, Dave Sirota's news organization that right. he launched, uh, I don't know how long ago now, about a year ago, maybe a, He's quite a little good. longer. He is good. And you know what? I have to say, I do think I'm going to sound like such a jerk. Uh, I think Jose Andres, I think celebrity oh, chef Jose yeah. Andres is the litmus test. You know what I mean? Totally agree. If you can see through that, I think you've got I think you've got the right glasses you know, on. And the lever has published a, a story, the headline of which is Altruistic Celebrity Chef Wants to Keep Wages Low, which I love. I mean, sure, Jose Andres does uh, you know, the, the things that he is involving himself Wonderful. with are sure they're yeah, yeah. good, but he also very, very heavily promotes his own involvement. Very much and so. And he's very hypocritical when it comes to what he wants to be made to pay yes. his employees. Yes. And the arguments that he uses to try and get out of the, oh no, if you, if you, you know, th this is all about a fight that's been going on in the district for years now. Yes. About raising the wages of tipped employees. Um, and Jose Andres has been on the wrong side of that fight giving various reasons, but mostly about how like, oh, no, he really wants to pay his workers more, but this isn't the right, right. legislation. There's something sure. wrong about it and trotting out the argument that um, it's not, you know, it's not good for the economy. Uh, you know, you're going to you're going to make businesses fail, whatever. Uh, this story notes that in California, which has more successfully been able to raise the tip minimum wage, Jose Andres is still planning to open restaurants. Sure. So. And he's going to pay what he's supposed to pay. Yeah. Did you know that he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize this year? I saw that. I saw that from this story. I'm sure he's a very nice guy. And I I'm guess. sure that he thinks that, you know, he is out there doing the right thing to help the downtrodden, et cetera, et cetera. I guess. But when it comes to his own people, his own employees, you yeah. just hear horror stories. Yeah. And he doesn't want to pay them a living wage. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, everyone should support raising the tip to minimum wage here. You can't uh, have vulnerable vulnerable people relying on right. their employer employer's choice. Yes, to make up wages that they owe them if they don't make the minimum. That's just it. Just yes, often doesn't work that way. Um, what else have we got? Oh, so yesterday uh, it was like yesterday evening that I saw the news about Joe Biden. Pardon it. The headlines were all Joe Biden pardons thousands yeah. for federal marijuana convictions, offers yes. pardon to thousands of federal marijuana convictions. I had been out. I was not, you know, analyzing the news. I'd seen the headline come through. I thought, all right, you know, that sounds good. I'm sure, there's a catch, but that sounds good. Yep. And I happened and to happen to run into a friend of mine uh, at the bar around the corner. I he's a very good friend. I like him very much. He's very he's very much a sort of liberal centrist. You know, mm -hmm. that's where he is I'm sitting uncomfortably because I, you know, whatever. I'm not going to psychoanalyze him. But he's someone who, who you know, is reliably supportive of of things that come sure. from that wing of the Democratic Party. Sure. Um, and so I ran into him and thinking I was introducing a sort of jolly point of conversation said, hey, so Biden, Biden, pardoning federal marijuana convictions. You know, hey, cool. And he went, <laughs> just sighed. His face collapses. Basically, just launched into how, what garbage it is. It is. It's not going to affect anybody's lives. It doesn't affect anything on the state level where most of these, you know, convictions come from. Oh, but he Nobody's urged in jail. states to do the same thing. Yes, he yes. urged them. I just I thought that was very funny because listen, it might not sound this way, but I oh. 
would be very happy. I'm not looking to bash Democrats no matter what they do. Right. I'm not looking no. for the stinky side of, of the, no. the beautiful cloud Agreed. or whatever. I, I want it to be good, right? I would love it if this party turned around and started doing things that are going to actually uh, – make the changes they say to want ha- they say they want to have happen happen right i would love to see them put the, their money where their mouth is i don't relish being this alienated from my society you know what i mean being the one who's like eh, hey don't be disappointed they're not going you know they are who they are this is there's not the party that's going to fulfill your dreams they don't want right. to do this stuff these guys are bad i don't like it i would rather be a bandwagoner, right? I'd rather be on the team. Absolutely. It's a more comfortable place right to be. Thing. Yeah, exactly. So but I mean, I try, I try, and then got shot down by shot down by my lib friend. <laughs> how <laughs> many? Absolutely right. How many people uh, is this going to uh, release from prison? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So you and I were talking before the show started about who this affects, and and it affects. Uh, People who uh, you you might get caught smoking a little bit of weed uh, at in a national park, yeah, or at the Iwo Jima, or in D.C., right? Yeah, uh, and maybe they write you a ticket, or if it, it this is your second or third offense, maybe you get six months probation. Those are the people being pardoned. Yeah, it, this this has no impact on anything on anybody. I do wonder if it is possible that there are people who are. Is it possible there's someone who is a D.C. resident who might be in jail on a federal possession charge because of the weird patchwork of sort of federal laws covering? I don't think so. Yeah. It's my experience that that simple possession is not really jailable anymore. Um, It's it's the uh, trafficking and uh, distribution, those things. And, And those crimes are not affected by this part. Nope. Not at all. But as you say, Biden did urge. Uh, yeah, he ur- did. Urge change. States. Great. How yep. did it go when he urged oil companies to bring down uh, their price? <laughs> good <laughs> how point. Is, how is any of that urging gone? Good point. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll talk. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, also, maybe we should mention there's a little bit of an Ebola scare happening yeah. in Uganda, and the U.S. has said it's going to divert travelers who have been to Uganda to five airports in the U.S. so yeah. they can go through CDC screening mm-hmm. and assess their, and that's their already level begun. of risk for that infection. Be- began a couple of days ago. Ebola, mm-hmm. Ebola is is making a serious comeback in Uganda right now. Killed 29 people. Wow. Killed 29 people so far wow. in Uganda, including four healthcare workers. And the uh, concern is also that apparently this outbreak is called by a version of uh, the Ebola virus that our existing vaccines and treatments oh my God. Uh, can't do anything against. So it's a particularly dangerous I didn't one. Know that. And so, yeah, we're, we're taking some precautions. Yes. And uh, man, I don't know if you've been, I don't know if you've been watching Kanye West flip out online. I have. Yeah. He's been saying a lot of really provocative things, and I think he's been saying them just to be provocative, but he's making an ass of himself. Yeah. I mean, I think he just is, you know— uh, He's disturbed. You can't—I mean, I, I almost regret bringing him up because, yeah, I mean, I think Kanye West is sort of disturbed. And so yeah. he will say a bunch of crazy things, and then he'll say some things that make sense. You have They are both coming from the mouth of a person who yeah. is obviously yeah. somewhat troubled. Documented And so you can't really—you know, you can't— pick and choose mm-hmm. and say, oh, no, he's right about this and he's yes. crazy. It, it's no. just silly. But, yeah, I, was, I didn't know he went on Tucker Carlson. Yeah. 
I'm going to interview on Tucker Carlson. Wearing a White Lives Matter shirt. Yeah, I mean, that's what he's gotten a bunch of attention uh, for. Uh, you know, it's whatever. Like, look at me. I'm controversial. Yeah. Yeah. So now we've, he's suckered us into mentioning him. Damn it. Damn it. We've, we, uh, we, we failed there, John. All right. Let's get to... Oh, and also, of course, uh, I was going to mention they're still investigating. This is funny. Uh, the AP story, it, we're still officially calling it a pipeline leak. Right. The Nord Stream, uh, the Nord Stream leak. And so uh, AP tells me Sweden has seized, seized evidence at the Baltic Sea pipeline leak site. Oh, boy. Uh, it says Sweden's domestic security agency said yesterday that so far its investigation has strengthened the suspicions of serious sabotage uh, and the probe confirmed detonations caused the damage to the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines. And what happened in the Baltic Sea there was very serious. Um, they are calling it, a, I mean, the prosecutors are calling it a crime scene. Mm-hmm. So I think we can stop calling it a, a leak. leak in headlines. Um, yeah, I guess the reason Sweden and Norway are undertaking this investigation, uh, the you know, the given reason is because it's in their waters. So that's why they're doing it. You know, Matt Taibbi said something that was very interesting, too, that when we talk, we as a government, when we talk about um, conspiring to blow up a pipeline, mm-hmm. we call that terrorism. Well, there was a dude who was a, a man who wrote a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, oh, who's a sort of environmental activist, has been making rounds. And there was a bunch of think pieces about like, is is what he's ta- in in discussing his book, which contains uh, lots of different suggestions for types of direct activism. But like, is he risking being arrested on charges of terrorism if he right. goes on radio programs and talks about his book? Mm-hmm. Good question. Yeah. Good I interrupted question. what you were about to say. Oh, well, when you talk about it, it's terrorism. When you actually do it, they're calling it sabotage. Ah, mm-hmm. very convenient. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder if it, yeah, I think that probably depends on who does it also. Exactly. Yeah. Let's, oh, um, let me add one other thing. Please. Uh, there was a, Taibi did a Twitter poll last night, and totally, totally unscientific. But the question was, who do you think uh, blew up the uh, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines? Mm-hmm. 70% of respondents said the United States, 29% said um, uh, the UK, oh, sorry, said Russia, and 1% said the UK. The for UK, some reason. Yeah. dark horse there, trying to, <laughs> trying to make a name for themselves. Poland was on the list too, but it was zero. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Poland's Kamala Harris in this particular poll, that's That's great. right. All right, let's take a break. We're going to come back and talk about some serious topics and some fun ones in just a sec. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And as I promised, we've got a mix of fun and serious. We've got energy politics. We've got civil unrest. We've got Kremlin intrigue, U.S. intelligence leaks, very expensive aircraft, 
Uh, there's a lot. Very expensive. Did Very you see this little? I'm, I'm sorry, and I, I'm interrupting you, mm-hmm. but uh, I I saw this when I got home yesterday. That two Russian guys in their 20s showed up in the Aleutian Islands yesterday. All right. After having somehow made their making their way to Alaska to avoid the draft. Huh. I mean, you could you know Sarah Palin can see Russia from her. <laughs> Front porch, right? right? So it's not that far. Hop, skip, and a jump. That's what they say. That's what they say. We're joined by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. How you doing, Mark? Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. John and I are pretty loosey-goosey today because it's Friday. It's We're going to try and pull ourselves together and get serious <laughs> here. I uh, want to start. <laughs> I'm going to pull myself an old-fashioned. Then. Okay. <laughs> Very <laughs> nice. Sometimes we can't help it. And sometimes there's just too much silly stuff out there. But I, I want to start with this story that we um, mentioned on the show briefly yesterday, this Intercept story um, about, well, the Intercept sources would like us to believe that when Russian forces entered Ukraine in February, U.S. intelligence officials were telling the White House that Ukraine would be overwhelmed in a matter of days, weeks at most, and that all the U.S. would have left to support in the country might be a small, ongoing guerrilla resistance. Um, the CIA totally botched it in this telling. Uh, The U.S. actually withdrew a bunch of their intelligence and military assets based on these predictions and only sent them back when it became clear uh, that this was not going to be a, a, you know, couple week cakewalk for Russia. Um, Do you buy this at all? And in either way, if you think this is credible or not, why do you think this story is being put out now? Yeah, actually, I do think this story is credible. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think the CIA had good reason at the time to believe that this was possible. Um, and I would say that that two things uh, uh, were not in their favor. Uh, and these aren't exactly complementary uh, to the Kremlin. Um, I think that the CIA had no idea that a political decision would be made to limit the Russian intervention in Ukraine to the terms of the special military operation, where out of their million-man active duty army and their two million reserves and 25 million combat experience combat pool, that Russia would only send 150,000 troops total into Ukraine. They they must have been like, are you serious? Um, I mean, less than the U.S. sent into Iraq. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's that's. I I think they. Um, I think certainly a lot of Russian military analysts were surprised. I think uh, the CIA was likely surprised. Um, uh, You know, maybe that might have done as an initial foray, but I think they expected Russia to uh, ramp things up really quickly uh, from what they had directly on the border. And no, that never happened. Yeah. Um, And the best I can tell uh, that that decision was made in Russia through some combination of concern about domestic political support, although I'm not really buying that one because support has been in the high 80s uh, or in the mid 80s, and and it's been in the 80s uh, even after the announcement of mobilization. So if that was the the reason the Kremlin got that one really wrong and underestimated their own support in the country. Uh, But um, I think they were signaling to NATO that 
their intentions uh, misguidedly, that their intentions were limited, that they were always prepared to return to the table uh, on you know the terms that they set out at the beginning, um, and and that what they really wanted was a political settlement. And I I think the CIA was like, are you serious? And just started <laughs> laughing. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I think they enjoyed a really good laugh over that. I think that they. The Kremlin was probably incredibly naive, believing in the goodwill, probably not of the Americans, but of the Europeans. And I would say that 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 is uh, Putin's, um, you know, still uh, existing Europhilia uh, rearing its head. Uh, hopefully it will have learned from that mistake. But I think the CIA probably, you know, realistically called that one. Um. And so how how would you put this then side by side with this story from The Washington Post? Uh, you know, so on one hand, you have U.S. intelligence leaks saying we had no idea the fight would go this way. And on the other hand, the Post in particular uh, has had I think they have been the ones really amplifying this idea that like the CIA has eyes everywhere in Russia and the CIA is directing Ukraine specifically to kill Russian generals, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this headline today is that. Um, there is dissent within Russia's Vladimir Putin's inner circle um, at the highest levels. And we know uh, apparently someone someone has told Vladimir Putin that he thinks he's mishandled aspects of this uh, conflict. I, the, the only reason I could see that this is news is to reinforce this idea that the United States has has very deeply penetrated uh, the Russian leadership. Uh, and also to reinforce this idea uh, that in the Russian leadership, there is no one who ever tells Vladimir Putin uh, anything along the lines of, hey, I think this is a bad idea or I told you so or you should have done this differently. Uh, and so I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about these two themes. Does the United yeah. States have eyes everywhere? And also, you know, should we believe stories that imply that Vladimir Putin is totally isolated, surrounded by yes men, and that any disagreement at all is a sign the regime is cracking? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I mean, I find it really interesting this narrative that the CIA is all present in Russia, mm -hmm. but in their own client state in Kiev. The, the, the one that they admit that they have CIA agents crawling all over the ground and mm -hmm. special forces, uh, that they just discovered that uh, elements within the regime there assassinated Daria Dugan, and they had yeah. no idea what was happening, despite their CIA office in the SBU building. Yeah. <laughs> in, in Kiev, right? I mean, they, they own several, all the top floors. Evidently, um, uh, this, of course, uh, is and, and, you know, they, they we really have very limited uh, intelligence about what is going on in our own our, our own ally. Right. right. That's nonsense. Of course. I mean, that's that's you know, um, you've all seen the Hogan, the meme from the old Hogan's Heroes zero, uh, series. Um, uh, I see nothing. I hear nothing. I know nothing. Right. 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 <laughs> That's 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 the CIA story here. Um, so um, as to, you know, the deep intelligence that they can tell that that people within the Russian government disagree with each other. I mean, I mean, that's amazing to me. I mean, that means they actually read Russian newspapers and watch Russian TV. Right. Um, but that, that's all that tells you right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't tell you any deep source. I mean, again, you're, you're, you're right that they are trying to spin this narrative that no one in the Russian government ever disagrees with each other, while even 
um, uh, you know, more honest Western Russian experts have long noted that, you know, one of the uh, strong strengths of Putin uh, it isn't necessarily some incredible charisma or, you know, a genius where he plays 5D chess uh, as some kind of James Bond villain, but that he manages differences between the Russian political and economic elites so well indicating a priori that they disagree about things all the time. And, and yes, they do. And all you have to do is turn on Russian TV to see the people are disagreeing everywhere, yeah. uh, you know, and criticizing the defense, criticizing the political decisions. Right. Uh, again, they present a caricature image of Russian politics, of the Kremlin, of society. And, and that is more propaganda directed against well, Sputnik's listeners out yeah. there in D.C. than it, of course, it is uh, against Russia it or anything seem, like that. I mean, it did seem funny to me that it, it, as a front page headline, I mean, the top headline yeah. is basically like cabinet minister privately expresses disagreement with with president. Basically, <gasps> I mean, right. yeah, it was it reminds me very much of of the way we used to treat Saddam Hussein, mm -hmm. where like, oh, my God, somebody disagreed with Saddam Hussein at a cabinet meeting. And so Saddam cut out his tongue and nailed it to the front door of his house. That was an actual report mm -hmm. that we got, yeah. is, which was is totally that like bogus. a little bit of projection that no one's allowed to disagree with Biden. And <laughs> I mean, where's Pete Buttigieg <laughs> been? That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's silent. It's, Pete. I mean, it, maybe they might have listened to, you know, Russian media, like, I don't know, hmm. Sputnik, and okay. heard me criticize the Kremlin <laughs> and the military operation on your show and others since, mm -hmm. I don't know, February? Maybe? I know. I don't know how you do it, Mark. You must be, you must be living in fear. I, Let me... I, I, you know, they, they said um, on, on Critical Hour, they said, I am the worst propagandist ever. <laughs> uh. Let me return to this Intercept story because there was another aspect of it that was getting highlighted uh, by some people as, you know, the real scoop, right? Uh, a couple of paragraphs into the story, uh, it drops this line that says, clandestine American operations inside Ukraine are now far more extensive than they were early in the war when U.S. intelligence officials were fearful Russia would steamroll over a Ukrainian army. There's a, there's a far larger presence of both CIA and U.S. special operations personnel and resources in Ukraine now than there were in February. And I, I wonder what you think of this, Mark, because I, I do not think it is news. Certainly it is not news to us that, see, sorry, U.S. special operations forces are in Ukraine, not former forces and not CIA, but actual special operations forces. I know reporter Seth Harp uh, has been saying from, you know, said months ago that he heard credible reports of, of this. I think Yahoo might have reported on it. I feel like this has the Washington Post reported on it. Yeah. <laughs> and so for a while, there was always this little fig leaf of former special operations forces. Mm -hmm. um, but e that even has dropped for a while. So I, I wonder how, how big is this actual news? Or is this just sort of confirming something that we know it doesn't get highlighted very often, but it is known if you want to look for that information? Yeah, it's known. But what I think this indicates here is the extent to which it's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, this is this is what I think that is the newsworthy evidence in this ridiculous propaganda piece in, in The Intercept. Um, this is this is the big thing that 
CIA and U.S. special operations personnel and resources far more extensive. What what they're saying is that they're running the war. I mean that that and that they are engaged in special operations. Uh, I, I think we can assume that the special U.S. special operations and CIA is involved in a little more than just training Ukrainian personnel uh, in in Ukraine at this point, um, which would mean that that. You know, de facto that the U.S. and Russia are at war. Um, I, I think that's the important takeaway here. Um, and that is certainly what people are saying in Moscow, um, that there is a recognition that we are at war with the United States. I mean, not just a proxy war with NATO, yeah. that we are at war with the United States, that there are a significant amount of U.S. personnel on the ground, uh, both, uh, you know, from the NATO countries that are there under the guise of mercenaries, but the amount now has drastically increased. So it's become clear that it is a coordinated program to shuffle, um, uh, you know, frontline combatants, uh, you know, whether they they just got out of the military, you know, uh, so that uh, it's it's, it's reaching into, uh, you know, the high thousands at this point. Um, so uh, it's significant more than it was before. And and then this about the special forces. We've previously heard from the Washington Post about European commandos. Uh, it's it's pretty extensive at this point. And, you know, there's how much of a Ukrainian military is it at this point? I, yeah, uh, not not very much. Uh, from what I can tell. So that led a lot of credence to the, um, uh, you know, the Kremlin and the Russian Ministry of Defense statements saying, yeah, uh, you know, maybe we underestimated this since we are at total war with NATO at this point. Um, And uh, that's, uh, you know, that's uh, indicating some things. But uh, the the Russian uh, calling up of the reserves and the, uh, the new status for the four um, uh, republics in uh, South and East Ukraine uh, joining Russia will allow Russia to move its entire million man active duty military into the defensive position in those areas. And that, that makes it a whole new war. And I, I think the West realizes that and they're starting to panic uh, a little bit. So that's, uh, I think, also part of the reason you're starting to hear some of these things now. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, what is happening in Europe as they try to figure out how to lower energy prices for their populations before temperatures really <laughs> drop. Yeah, I know. They, they've been meeting in Prague. There was a meeting in Prague yesterday and today. They're talking about subsidizing gas purchases. They're talking about price caps. They're talking about windfall taxes. They're talking about creating a buying group. Uh, what do you think we're going to see coming out of this meeting? Yeah, their their big plan is, um, uh, you know, they're all support each other because we're all in this together. Right? Not for very long. Uh, yeah, yeah, and um, redistribution. I mean, that's that's their big plan, uh, and to forbid people from raising prices um, yeah. because that 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 has worked so well for 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 you know for uh, uh, other economic systems in the yeah. past. Um, uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, they're they're just uh, shuffling chairs around on the Titanic. Uh, at this point, they don't they don't know what to do. Um, and uh, there certainly is no real cooperation among EU member states. But I mean, that's not any uh, news in this. I mean, you've got at the far end, you've got countries like uh, Hungary, of course, that aren't even participating in any of this and talking about holding referendums to just did not, you know, get out of 
the whole EU sanctions uh, on uh, energy altogether. Um, and uh, it, it, you've still got every European country looking out for themselves. And, uh, you know, despite the, the technocrats in Brussels thinking that they're going to somehow paper this all over. Um, and, you know, it, when it comes down to every country for themselves, some countries are going to do better than others. Um, you know, in the coming energy crisis this winter. And, you, I mean, you've got a situation like, like France where they might have expected to do better, but oops, uh, we've got several of our nuclear power plants shut down for maintenance, it turns out, and we're in just as bad a situation as uh, everyone else. Uh, so um, uh, the knives will come out. Um, and uh, everyone will be at some point looking out for trying to keep their own citizens warm because, of course, their own jobs uh, will depend on it. Yeah. And uh, everything I have not seen anything mentioned. First of all, it's clear they don't actually have one clear battle plan. It's just a lot of things that they're tossing out there that are possible. And none of them seem me as as having any real credible in fact. In fact, a lot of what they're talking about may make things work. Before we move to the, the U.S. and OPEC, I just wonder, I, out of the blue, I got this uh, notification from the U.S. State Department counseling me to exercise increased caution if I were to travel within Kazakhstan because of the possibility of civil unrest. And I wonder if I hadn't seen anything indicating this. I just, I, uh, is there any do you have any idea why the State Department would be sending these travel advisories right now? Uh, um, other than, you know, uh, the, the, the CIA is at work and they know more than anyone else does. Uh, are they planning on sparking up more unrest in Kazakhstan? I mean, they already seem to be doing that in Iran um, and uh, a, a number uh, of other countries, uh, you know, within uh, the region. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I haven't heard anything about it, but I'm certainly going to be paying attention yeah. now. I mean, I guess there's going to be an election next month, which has been called. But that's next month. Yeah, we'll see. I, I was just curious. I suspected it would, wasn't necessarily anything uh, that we could see on the surface right now. All right. Let's talk about we talked about energy in Europe. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about what the U.S. Uh, can, can't, should, shouldn't do in response to this announcement by OPEC Plus that uh, – its own panel recommended cutting production by 2 million barrels a day next month. And the news yesterday that Saudi Arabia was raising oil prices for the U.S. Uh, you have different members of the U.S. Congress now suggesting that the United States should stop replenishing the Saudi military. I support that, that the U.S. should withdraw troops from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Go for it. Uh, the U.S. should bring a dispute against OPEC plus before a World Trade Organization tribunal. Do uh, you think any of these are likely to happen? What do you, what do you think the UK, what can the U.S. do here? Okay, so, I mean, let's be clear that OPEC plus, what they mean is Saudi Arabia and Russia, the two biggest uh, yeah. oil uh, exporters, sitting down and working out prices between themselves because they've discovered that they can they actually have a lot of common interests in that regard it's not like some kind of saudi russian alliance it's both countries looking out for their own interests and finding out they have some interests in common mm -hmm. and they would both like the price of oil to be a little higher um i think a lot of and then, then they tell the rest of opec what 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 the deal is and and the, everyone else falls in line because uh, the two biggest exporters. Um, I think that uh, a lot of this uh, stems from 
the very bad relations that the Biden administration has created with one of the U.S.'s longest uh, allies, uh, certainly in the Middle East, you know, um, uh, for control of the region uh, through a, a personal animosity uh, with uh, 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 Prince Bonesaw, I mean, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, and, um, uh, you know, this stems from, you know, you know, the, the, the personal um, attention drawn uh, to this um, uh, extinguishing of this former Saudi intelligence protege turned Washington Post journalist Asagi uh, to uh, Biden campaigning on stopping U.S. support for Saudi uh, invasion of Yemen and then not really doing anything about it, but still, um, um, you know, um, and then all of this uncomfortableness with with the U.S. Uh, using its control of the global financial and uh, economic infrastructure to cut Russia out of the global uh, finance and banking system, to um, and then to, to threaten to start dictating the price of oil for the global market. You know what countries should pay. Saudi Arabia. None of this should make Saudi Arabia comfortable. Uh, there, they were personal ang- personally upset with the Biden administration. And there's no there's no question that, I mean, it's not just the Biden administration, the U.S., you know, uh, going back several administrations uh, has not been happy with the choice of Mohammed bin Salman to succeed his father. Um, they, they don't agree with that logic of succession because they have a lot of people in Saudi Arabia that they would like to see. And now they see it as because, you know, as far as they're concerned, every country in the world has to make a decision. Are you with us or with Russia? Neutrality is no longer an option, and they intend to punish everyone who doesn't get in line with them. That is making a lot of countries that, that have a, you know, uh, aspirations of, of foreign policy independence uh, extremely unhappy. And that's what Saudi is saying here. When the U.S. says, don't you dare decrease the uh, production of oil, um, and uh, by a million barrels a day, and Saudi comes back and says, "Okay, we won't decrease the price, uh, you know, production of oil by a million barrels per day. We'll do it by two million barrels per day. How do you like them, Apple? <laughs> uh-huh. Right? Uh, and we'll raise the price for you specifically more than for everyone else. Um, what should the U.S. do? Well, the U.S. should stop trying to be hegemon and dictate the price of oil to, to uh, uh, you know, and production of oil to Saudi Arabia and 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 Russia and, and every other country. What will they do? Um, I, I think they're going to move into um, um, they will try to change the Saudi succession. They will, in, a, in a, uh, effect, mm. be openly supporting a coup against Mohammed bin Salman now. There are several, of course, Saudi elites. Mohammed bin Salman had a little imprisonment and murder campaign to make sure that all of his um, uh, challengers, uh, you know, potential challengers, but of course, that didn't completely end it. And I think the U.S. will now begin actively, um, you know, regime change operations in Saudi Arabia. That's the most likely. Pretty bold predictions there. We'll see. I want to ask you to make... Hell hath no fury like a hegemon. I mean, yeah, maybe. We haven't seen it yet. They've they've rolled over. Uh, There's been a lot of rolling over, more than I might have expected, but, you know, could be. If you want to make a... uh, I really want to talk about this F-35 story. I want to squeeze it in. Um, It it caught my eye a couple of headlines about South Korean lawmakers complaining uh, publicly 
about the performance of F-35s they bought from the United States, uh, that they're malfunctioning, that it's hard to maintain operational readiness, that the planes have to be grounded too often. Um, You know, the, the South Korean Air Force, for their part, has said the planes are meeting their goals. Um, but this particular Eurasian Times story noted that Australia earlier this year announced that their F-35s would spend less time in the air than anticipated, and also that it was going to spend $10 billion Australian dollars to maintain its fleet. And I started thinking, I mean, the F-35 has been a punching bag in some quarters for some time mm-hmm. for how over budget it was, for how overdue it was, for all the weird problems that they apparently couldn't anticipate, like With pilots becoming With hypoxic. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but what is my my hot take here is maybe Northrop Grumman and these other contractors are are crazy like a fox because the uh, partner nations have still bought these things. They've bought into this giant boondoggle of a program, and now they're on the hook for maintenance for as long as they want to try and keep these things going. And so maybe, you know, maybe this is not actually a procurement gone wrong, or maybe they found a way to make this profitable because, hey, you bought you bought the dang things, and now you got to keep paying to maintain them. Maybe uh, maybe it wasn't so stupid after all. What do you, What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the U.S. government and and the the defense, uh, you know, the military industrial complex uh, salespeople uh, swindled uh, U.S. allies. You know, some combination of pressure and swindling all convinced them to buy into this boondoggle. And I thank you for using the B word because Uh it's almost certainly what it was. Uh, I mean, maybe in 10, 15 years, uh, the F-35 might have been ready. They might have gotten out the kinks, but they put it into mass production uh, way before it was ready. Um, And it continues to have uh, uh, huge uh, maintenance uh, problems. Um, And uh, when when you start talking about what is supposed to be your premier fifth generation fighter that you've spent so much time on, and it doesn't spend enough time in the air because Mm -hmm. it's in maintenance that long. All right. Obviously, uh, it's a huge problem. I don't think North Grumman set out to do this, but they will profit from it nonetheless. Now, at least in the short term. But. Uh, you know, the big, uh, you know, problem with all of this in the long run, of course, is that even the U.S.'s own allies are going to start to question uh, these high-end products that are coming out of the U.S. military-industrial complex that they have now thrown so much money at and are going to be throwing so much more at. And, um, you know, uh, you know, they might consider other options. Of course, when the U.S. has you know, uh, adopted a policy of sanctioning anyone who buys weapons from the biggest competitor, Russia, you know, they're creating kind of a mafia racket. You, you, you buy our, uh, you know, uh, poorly developed stuff uh, because that's the only thing you have an option for that we won't sanction you with. It's a, yeah. it's a racket. I mean, I wonder if, it, the la- if the last thing that you had to buy was the F-35 and this is what it cost you. You wonder if it has the potential to actually uh, affect some of these relationships a little bit. I, that's Yeah, I, I mean, over time. Yeah, yes, over time. Over time. I, inevitably. I'm- yeah. Yeah. Mark Sloboda, we're going to let you go. That was international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, enjoy the weekend. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to skip this break and go straight into talking about marijuana and a bunch of different pot laws in the United States because uh, I want to get to this conversation. We're going to talk about 
Joe Biden's pardon and what exactly it means. And if we have time, I want to talk about some very interesting lawsuits happening in Northern California uh, where uh, county officials and police are being accused of discriminating against Asian-American communities there, uh, including in uh, targeting them for growing marijuana. We're joined by Brian Wright, California attorney and former radio host. Brian, thanks for being here. Hey, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I want to talk about this pardon and what did and didn't happen yesterday with regard to marijuana, because the headline sounded great. Joe Biden offers mass pardon for those convicted of marijuana possession. Biden pardons thousands of people convicted of simple marijuana possession. And it will be good for the uh, 6,500 people, according to uh, these reports, who have convictions on their record and who we are told will see these records cleared under a process that is yet to be developed, I have to say. So I hope that happens with some alacrity. Um, This will presumably help them, uh, you know, get jobs they might have missed out on or housing they might have missed out on or credit. So great. But no one is serving time in federal prison solely for the crime of marijuana possession. It won't affect the people who are in federal prison for dealing marijuana. Um, And so, you know, it has the potential to help a pretty small number of people who aren't in prison. And, and you know, he also directed the HHS to expedite a review of whether marijuana should still be ske- considered a Schedule One substance, along with heroin and LSD. Obviously, it should not be. I support that. Um, but what, what do you make of this move, actually? Well, the, uh, the stock market thinks it's a good move because apparently the marijuana stocks are up sharply. I saw that. Yeah. Great. That's fine. Uh, I'm sorry? I said great. Yeah, I mean, I'll take it. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I think it's something that makes a lot of sense to me and something that needs to be done, needed to be done, whether it something as small as this is worth all the hoopla. That's another question altogether. And, of course, you know how politicians are. They do things that are expedient for them. And uh, this is probably one of those things, because in reality, it's uh, something that could have happened and nobody would have heard about it. Yeah. But at the same time, there's been this discussion at the federal level of should we legalize, should we not legalize, which in my mind is kind of a stupid discussion, because why is it illegal in the first place? Yeah. We have created this myth around this product. Uh, And it's not only marijuana, but it's hemp in general. And of course, hemp is, in essence, the same plant as the marijuana plant. It just doesn't have the THC that the marijuana has. It has the CBD instead. But that entire species has been demonized. And it's been demonized since the 30s. Yes, exactly. The other thing I was getting here is uh, Andrew. Remember when Andrew Cuomo was going down, and he decided that's when he decided to fully legalize marijuana in New York. I forget exactly what he did, but he came out like a couple of days before he had to resign and was like, "Hey guys, we're going to finally do the marijuana thing we said we were going to do." I also wanted to just make clear, like Joe Biden has said repeatedly, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. If he really wanted that to to be the case. Surely, legalization would would be the step to take, don't you think? Well, the issue isn't from the administration standpoint. It's from 
the Senate, basically, I think, uh-huh. is concerned that the red states are not going to buy on to this. And there has been a lot of discussion. Frankly, I've been doing some legal work in, in this industry, and I've learned a lot, and it's really opened my eyes as to what is going on and has caused me to have this question. Now, yeah. understand, I don't use the stuff myself, so I have no axe to grind here. I approach things from logic, from fairness, and it's asinine. Even where it's legalized, I think the whole procedure is asinine. And I want to ask you a question, Michelle. If something is illegal, but if you pay us money, it's not illegal. What is the foundation for the illegality in the first place? Yeah. Because in the states where it is legal, it is massively taxed, and uh, it's, it's like alcohol. And frankly, I never really have thought about this in, in connection with alcohol before, that you pay extra money if you want to buy alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yet what is the largest department in a grocery store? Well, it depends on if the grocery store sells booze or not. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's booze. Yes. And so why in the world do we accept the fact that government decides this industry, you can do this industry, but you pay more tax than you do for that industry? What, why is government telling us how to live? Yeah. Now, not that I'm encouraging people to drink alcohol or to smoke marijuana, but the way we run society is just berserk. And yeah. somehow, if government wants you to get inoculated, that's infringing your rights. But if you can go pay more for that can of beer than you have to pay for the can of Coke, somehow that's not infringing rights. Right. Why aren't people up in the air about this stuff? We are inconsistent, we're illogical, and looking at the history of cannabis, marijuana, uh, hemp in particular, that product has so many beneficial uses. For it to have been demonized all these years, and there was a massive marketing campaign against it. William Randolph Hearst apparently owned a lot of timber interests and felt that hemp was perhaps a better source of paper than timber was. Mm-hmm. So he used his newspaper empire and yellow germ- journalism to create this atmosphere of, oh my God, no, you can't use that stuff. And then there was a movie that came out in the 30s called Reefer Madness. I don't know if you've seen it. but Yes, yes, yes. It was financed by a church group. And it was right after the end of Prohibition. They tried it with alcohol. It didn't work with alcohol. They finally changed the law. They changed the. They actually amended the Constitution initially in 1919, the 18th Amendment, to you can't sell alcohol. And they got rid of it because people wouldn't put up with it. Well, that's kind of what's happening with marijuana, I think. But... I, I want to ask you also about another uh, story that I think is because I, I agree. I mean, I think the position on marijuana is ridiculous. It, it, it does. It hasn't made sense for a very long time. And while, you know, I don't have anything 
I, I don't criticize this step by Joe Biden. You know, the, there is more that can and should be done. I want to ask about this weird story coming out of Northern California uh, that alleges that this uh, utility company has been handing over records of electricity consumption for entire zip codes to their police department without any warrant, without any reason to suspect wrongdoing by any particular resident. Uh to help police look for illegal marijuana growing operations. Uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a data privacy group, is suing the Sacramento Municipal Utility District on behalf of an Asian American individual in the county and an Asian American organization. Uh, and they are suing partly because, you know, I mean, they say that the uh, SMUD, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, uh, they say that in sharing this information, which should have been protected, that they also excluded data from predominantly white neighborhoods and also that police receiving the data further removed non-Asian names and only sent Asian-sounding names to investigators for further scrutiny. And so, you know, the lawsuit says, one, you should have an expectation of privacy about these records. And two, they are being shared in a way that discriminates against Asian Americans and then used to discriminate against Asian Americans. And so I wonder if you can talk to us about, you know, what is the expectation of privacy when it comes to utility bills? And what does it mean when these utility organizations are just handing over uh, troves of data to police departments? Well, I, I it's actually a very interesting question because you... As the layman, you just don't think about these things, that the, uh, the utility company has my personal information, and what's it going to do with that information? I tell you, in the digital age, there is so much information about us that's gathered that we don't even conceive. But uh, it's interesting, this issue has already been addressed at, at the uh, circuit court level in the Seventh Circuit in a case called Naperville Smart Meter Awareness versus City of Naperville, and I think it was 2018. And that uh, circuit court ruled that it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment to turn over that kind of information because the smart meter gathers so much information. It's not just come at the end of the month and read my meter. It's every hour, every four hours, whatever, it gathers how much energy is being used. And uh, the court ruled that, in particular, if it is related to a law enforcement type of thing, that the utility cannot do that. Now, of course, Seventh Circuit is not California, and it's not been addressed at the Supreme Court level. So each individual circuit is going to have to address this issue. But I, I think uh, that it's a valid complaint. And then when you take it further and say that they're calling out <laughs> names of Caucasians, yeah, what in the world is going on here? This is also not the first uh, lawsuit in Northern California that is alleging discrimination against Asian Americans. Uh, the ACLU sued 
Siskiyou County earlier this year on behalf of uh, Asian American residents and Asian American groups, uh, alleging that they had been subject to a campaign of harassment by city officials, that they're disproportionately targeted for traffic stops, uh, that city ordinances governing how much water can be transported on certain roads only apply to Asian American neighborhoods, that the county targets them with property liens. Uh, yeah, what is going on in Northern California? Can you can can you tell us? <laughs> Again, you know, you're asking me to be in the minds of people. But uh, uh, sadly, if you look at the at the um, district map of California, you look at Northern California counties, and guess what? Red. Yeah. I kind of hate to put it in those terms, but it has a tendency to reflect reality. And I'll tell you the thing that is particularly upsetting to me, aside from the fact of it there being any racial motivation in anything that is done, especially at the governmental level, a lot of these people in those areas are Hmong. Yes. And if you remember, or I don't even know if you're old enough to remember, but the Hmong mm-hmm. were uh, come from Southeast Asia, and they were a particular group that assisted the United States in the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And when the North Vietnamese won the war, they felt that they had to move because they were now the bad guys. So here is an ethnic group that tried to assist us. They, they had to leave their home country because they were assisting us. And now they're being treated this way. Yeah, it's just disgusting. Yeah, it is. I was surprised to find the number of uh, lawsuits and stories that don't really get uh, remarked upon. It's interesting how uh, different parts of the country have different patterns of discrimination, and so you just sort of your antenna aren't alerted to different pa- you know patterns that aren't part of the region where you grew up. It's a right. uh, part of being in a big country. I think we are up against our one o'clock break. I want to say thank you so much to Brian Wright for joining us. Brian's a California attorney and a former radio host. Brian, thanks so much. Uh, enjoy the weekend. Nice. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back and talk about uh, some rallies planned this weekend for Julian Assange and a few other topics. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. Tomorrow we'll see major events in London, Washington, and Canberra, as well as a dozen smaller gatherings around the world in support of Julian Assange. The WikiLeaks co-founder is still being held in London's Belmarsh prison, awaiting possible extradition to the United States on charges of espionage for revealing U.S. war crimes to the world. The event here in Washington will be from noon to three o'clock in front of the Justice Department at 10th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest and will feature a slate of speakers. Lots of fun speakers. I'm looking forward to this very much. 
We're joined here in the studio by Randy Credico. Randy is a longtime comedian and social justice activist, the former director of the William J. Kunstler Fund for Social Justice, and host of the radio show Live on the Fly, which airs every Wednesday afternoon from 2.30 to 3 on New York's WBAI. Randy is also a leading voice in the defense of his friend Julian Assange. Randy, always, always good to have you. Yes, it's Fridays at 3 p.m. on WBAI. Oh, it's Fridays now. And then 10 a.m., on Mondays on Progressive Radio Network. Yeah, oh, thanks I for correcting me. It used to be 2.30 to 3 on Wednesdays. And uh, anyway, that's the current. So that so was only a half-hour show. Now it's an hour show on Friday at 3 o'clock, which you have been on. How yes. did you forget? I know, right? Huh? How I don't know how I forget. Just because you have like the most... The busiest schedule of anyone that I know. Seriously. Yeah, it, it is. I can't, I you can't work any harder. You do two hours of radio in your sleep. I hear it between two and four. Yeah. You know, somehow. I don't know how I do that. I and then, know. And then I have three columns, and then I've got this weekly television uh, show, too, on Whistleblowing. Wow. I mean, it's been busy. It really. And I just sent my eighth book to the publisher. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Randy. Let's start with uh, this event tomorrow, Justice. It's going to be different from the event in London where thousands of people are going to literally ring the houses of parliament. What should we expect to see here in D.C.? In D.C., we hopefully uh, will see a, uh, a sizable turnout. Now, you've done these before, John. I've, I've staged events there in front of the DOJ. Uh, and it's, it's a tough road to hoe in yeah. this city because, you know— being with uh, James, the uh, proprietor of the uh, DC uh, mobile uh, billboard truck, uh, where we have our uh, billboards, mm-hmm. uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom, uh, over the last eight weeks, you see that the city is uh, inundated with, when it, ter- when it comes to Assange, apathy and antipathy. Yeah. All right. So it's not yeah. easy to round up people to go to the Department of Justice. So I'm, you know, I'm, That's true. I'm, I'm just. I want people to know if there's a hundred people that are tomorrow, that'd be a huge win. Yeah. From judging what I've done here before, but I think this is going to be better. You got some great speakers. You got Chris so Hedges. Too. We've got you. We got uh, Ben Cohen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Donziger is coming down, uh, and uh, a boatload of other uh, personalities. And if we have as many speakers that are scheduled tomorrow, then we'll be packed. Yeah. All right. Because we got we got three hundred speakers. So if they all get on. It should be a, a very busy uh, afternoon. But what, That's what, what we're we going to march around the building, the DOJ, uh, at 1.30. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there'll be a lot of speakers. And, you know, we're basically uh, a frigate. And the, in the, the, um, the deal in, D, in uh, London is the ship of the line, you know. So we're kind of like yes. uh, they're uh, roaming around in the waters. Uh, as there are events all over the world uh, being uh, staged in uh, in solidarity uh, with this event in in London, so um, you know it's we're just growing. You know, every movement takes is, a actually. long time. Although we, you know, I, it's 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 we, we are at a dire point right now, a critical point, and uh, we got to grow quickly at this point. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. And, uh, and so that's what we're expecting tomorrow. It's going to be a nice day, and uh, we've got the truck going around. we got two trucks tomorrow. Uh, we deploy a good. second truck tomorrow. Not that that's the end all, but it's like, and, what do we do? And these do? trucks, these are, these are billboard trucks. Yes, billboard I, trucks. I, I see them all over town. Yeah, well, there's a second one coming out tomorrow. That's great. Uh, so uh, it, it, we're, we're trying to do as much as we can. You know, I do a podcast. I do two. I've done 300 Assange shows since 2016. So you do what you can. What can you do? You just got to keep moving. 
You got to keep moving. This is at Saturday at, at uh, tomorrow at noon. Uh, now it's it's uh, it's on what street is this on? It's not. It's Pennsylvania it, it's, Avenue. Yeah, it's Tenth and Pennsylvania. Tenth Street in Pennsylvania yes, Avenue. Yes, nine fifty Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest. So uh, it's it's. I'm expecting the biggest turnout that we've had at the DOJ. I, I agree. It's you know, going to be the biggest. You're there. You're one of the speakers. Yeah, I'm very proud out? to be one of the speakers. I left you yeah. out. And I left no, no, a lot no. Of, it's, uh, it's on there. Yeah, well, I it's don't have there. my we, glasses it's, on. It's so. Chris Hedges, who's a giant. Yes. Uh, Garland Nixon. Randy yeah, Credico, Garland's that's there. you. I just saw him. Uh, ben Cohen, one of the founders of Ben & Jerry's. Jill Stein is going to be there. Marsha Coleman, uh, Adebayo, and a whole bunch of other people. This is going to be a big deal. You know, we've done a lot of these where we've had a dozen and a half people. We've done some where we've had a little bit more than that. I think this is going to be a, a much bigger deal. I, I do too. I think it's going to be, and it's going to be encouraging and, and we got to just keep sending the message out there, educate people. Uh, you know, I, I was listening to Bill Kunstler uh, speech. He was like my godfather. Mm-hmm. I met him in 86 and I lived at his house for 10 years and ran the Kunstler Fund for Racial Justice, which you pointed out. And uh, in uh, May of 1970, after the uh, massacre at Kent State, mm-hmm. Bill Kunstler went down. He was the first lawyer down there. And he came back a few weeks later when all of the, all of the uh, students, 25 students, were indicted and mm-hmm. cleaned the skirts, as he said, of the, uh, cleared the skirts of the uh, National Guard. And um, he said, look, the biggest mistake that the German people made was they didn't understand the threat of the boots until the boots were on the doorstep. Now yes. this, I hate to use that kind of hyperbole. I hate, I don't like to use third Reich rhetoric, but the, he makes a good point. This, that was a critical point back then. Yeah. This is a critical point right now. People, this is a message, a message to media. I don't care. Listen, we got to be act as one right now because they're threatened too. They don't understand it. You know, I get mad. We excoriate the media, but you know, and, and, and slam them left and right all the time. Well, I don't know if that's the approach. How do I get to them? They got to understand. They got to be educated on this because they are standing by, you know, they built in 1934, uh, they built the, uh, the, the uh, Dachau, which was only for communists. Right. But you know, four years later it was Treblinka and it That's was right. Dak, it was uh, all of these other uh, places, uh, Auschwitz and Buchenwald. So you got to know that just because it's Julian Assange, Julian Assange right now, who's a despised person to them because they don't understand. They don't understand just like people were despised back then and, uh, and they didn't think it was going to come to them, but it did. So we got to act as one right now, and they got to join us. We have to act. I don't, I'm so sick and tired of the divisions here. We got to get them in. They got to know uh, because you can go after the most vulnerable right now, mm-hmm. and that's now. Then they start chewing at the middle. All right. So I don't care if you're with uh, Amnesty International, or Human Rights Watch, or Reporters Without Borders. You know, if as Bill Kunzer said back then, I don't care if you're with the ACLU or uh, you're with the Weathermen. We have to act together right now, and not because this is a this is. I hate to use this, uh, but I do. I'm, I don't hate to use it. I'm, I'm proud to say that this is not proud, but the fact that. They're going after the First Amendment, the very bedrock mm-hmm. of this fragile ersatz uh, democracy, which is frayed as it is. Any hopes of keeping it alive? 
is uh, they 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 is the First Amendment. If we lose the First Amendment, then you got the Bill of Rights goes, and that's the whole that's foundation. Right. It's this a table very slippery falls slope to the ground. This table falls to the ground. Yes, and then you know what that is? That's a real coup. Yeah, that that is, that is an coup. actual that's coup. An insurrection against this democracy. Yes, is what they're perpetrating right now, and they're doing it with Julian Assange first. So people got to be aware of that and get involved right now. This is a barricades moment. You know, it mm-hmm. really is. There's, I don't know a case, and I study uh, these legal cases over the last couple of centuries, uh, and I don't know anything like this that has the kind of consequences. Maybe the Dred Scott decision right. had those kind of consequences for a while, uh, but people did uh, rise after that. And, uh, you know, it's, it, is it a lost cause? Well, I, I don't know if it's a lost cause. Those are the only ones worth fighting. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting it. And, uh, you know, we can go through the history. Uh, you know, Spartacus was on the right side. Sure. Uh, that was a, a lost cause. Nat Turner was on the right side. Gabriel Prosser, uh, Denmark Vesey, all on the right side. Uh, the Paris Commune on the right side. Uh, Spain in the 30s, the right side. Okay, they all lost. But Let's remember, there are victories. There was uh, there was the 1789 French Revolution. There was Garibaldi. There was Toussaint Louverture in Baku in 1793. And you go to Garibaldi, 1,000 men liberated Sicily and uh, in 1861 and mm-hmm. Naples. Mm-hmm. And he refused, by the way, a commission from Lincoln to, to really? fight in 1862 because it didn't include— the aim of the Civil War was not to eradicate slavery. So he turned it down. He got the letter that he got from um, the Secretary of State Seward. Fantastic. Yeah. Let me let me ask you about Stella. I'm ready to um, go now. Morris. All right. <laughs> no, no, we didn't get to the Do fun you, part I yet. I think we're finished right now. I gave you so much rhetoric there. Huh? Stella Morris, Jillian's wife, um, has been very vocal lately. She, she debated uh, John Bolton. On, war criminal. Uh, yeah, war criminal, criminal yeah. John Bolton on yeah. uh, the Pierce Morgan show in the UK the other day. Uh, what are you hearing from her? What is she telling you about Julian's condition? He's had some serious medical problems. She's in regular touch with him, of course. She's able to go visit him. But is there any news coming out of Belmarsh? I get text messages from her all the time. The latest was she was upset that... Uh, that Roger Waters did an interview with the with Rolling Stone. Now we we right. know that Rolling hit, Stone hit it, job. It, it's it's the National Review right now. Forget yeah. about it. And and so <laughs> I think there's this mystique that the uh, that the uh, that Rolling Stone is some kind of progressive uh, magazine. It's the not nation of the 1920s. No, it's uh, very you know, neoliberal. The masses or something. It's not. It's it's neoliberal. And it, and so he got into this discussion with this guy, and he'll do these shows because he wants to get the point out. That's and he'll right. Do these, Interviews, but she that's uh, she was a little concerned about that. That uh, this guy did a hit piece, so you get interviewed, and the guy does a hit piece. Uh, this guy by the name of Ball. It's his yeah. last night. Not much of a ball, you know what I mean? Right. Not on the ball, but uh, that was. Uh, but I don't talk about the condition. I know we have a big billboard out there with the two of them. And with the two of them and the two children. Yes, and that's the one we're going to keep on permanently. And it says, uh, you know, a a journalist and a family man, 12 years, a political prisoner. Break the chains, reunite the family. Uh, I mean, let's appeal to people. This this man has two children. It's the same way if you take a look at the Haymarket. uh, It reminds me so much of Lucy Parsons uh, and whose husband, Albert Parsons, uh, was was hanged. And he wasn't even in town when the fire. He was framed. Clearly innocent. Right. And she couldn't see 
her husband awaiting trial or the kids couldn't. They, she had two kids. And then after his death, she stood on a corner in Chicago for 30 years, you know, proclaiming his innocence. And uh, and she's of that 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 ilk. She's out there every All the day. Time. And so I, she's the Lucy Parsons of a of, uh, hundred years later. Yeah, I you think know? you're exactly so, right. And she's out there. She's articulate and she's she's indefatigable. I want to encourage our listeners who are in the area or can get to the area to come to this event tomorrow. Uh, it's at 10th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the Justice Department from 12 to 3. Great speakers. It's going to be. I mean, uh, you're yep, always I'll be good. there. Thank you. You're, Thank you're you. really. It's just like. Uh, I'm taking this very seriously. In the lineup. It, when, you, when you're in the lineup, it's like having a Gehrig. All right. So uh, a little Gehrig. They may try to walk you, but they're not going to be able to do this tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> you're going to have Chris Hedges in front of you. Yeah. And you're going to have uh, Ben Cohen behind you. Yeah. So it's, uh, we have. And uh, Steven also, Donziger. Steven Donziger. What a know, story he, that guy has. And Jill Stein. And Jill Stein will be there. Yes. Yeah, she's and, terrific uh, too. Yeah. Randy, I hope you will. Um, you will uh, stay for another 15 minutes. We've got this segment. Every- I'll go on to the fourth <laughs> inning of the Cleveland game. I'm sorry. All right. We've got this segment on Fridays called News of the Weird, where we go over some of the odder news stories of the week, and we hope that you will help us analyze some of these stories. So I want to start with this one. Sorry, I'm just glancing at these. There's a theme that I don't <laughs> uh, like. Yeah. You know, I did you not know, do man, that on purpose. Did you come up with these? I did not do it on purpose. Now, these were actually published by uh, U Express. Yeah, these are not my stories. These are not your stories. But there, there, there is an unfortunate theme. There is a theme, theme and I, I apologize. I want to warn listeners without uh, I, I actually left the it. grossest one out. Thank you for right. that. <laughs> I'm Small gonna... mercies. <laughs> Although... I'm going I don't know back if you heard me at my desk. And watch the last three innings of the game. I'll see you guys. All right. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if you heard me laughing at my desk. That was the one that I left out. Oh my god. Um, right. So a family is seeking to press charges against a guy who was briefly married to their mom in the 1970s. Okay, this is according to the New York Post. Their beef with him is allegedly this guy goes to their mom's grave every morning with his current wife, and he pees on his ex-wife's grave. Wow. Yeah, every morning for like 30 years. Wow. And occasionally he'll bring feces in a sandwich bag and dump the feces on the grave too. Holy cow. Yeah. So, uh, You know what? (laughs) I think if you get someone to do that to your grave for 30 years, I think you win. Yeah. He's making that commute. Does he live next yeah. to the cemetery? My God. He's driving I... half an hour every day to the cemetery to to dump poop on your grave. You have beaten that man. I don't even let Seriously. him do it. Let him ruin his life. I mean, get him arrested and the for the crazy thing is surely I mean, they think public urination is a crime. Well, I mean, they, there's no footage. They, they went to visit their mom's grave and they found this pyramid on the grave, mm-hmm. right? And they're like, oh, uh, I hope that's a dog. And uh, mm. it turns out that uh, you can tell. Yeah, you can, you can tell. tell. Yeah. So wow, they went another time, and they actually saw him doing it. They set up a trail camera, and saw that he was coming every day. You know what, man? Yeah, I think you see that, and you think that's the power of my mom. <laughs> Honestly, I hope I, I hope I make someone that mad. The cops <laughs> before I die. The I cops mean, it's, won't help. It's obviously terrible and disrespectful, but so what, seriously, this, what are they trying? This to man do? is losing hours of his life, months of his life. What's the lawsuit? 
Well, they, they called the cops. The cops are like, yeah, what do you want us to do about it? I mean, it's vandalism, surely. It's vandalism, sure. If you want to book him on public urination, they you have someone to a, sit there and catch him. They talk him. to a detective, that and the detective is like, look, this just isn't important enough for us to do anything about. I mean, yeah. yeah. I think what you got newspaper was that in? New York Post. Of course. Your hometown course, paper. Yeah. Yes. Here's one uh, from the Daily Mail in the UK. I honestly do not even know. I don't even know. I feel like you're not. I feel like you shouldn't say these things on the radio, John. Well, the, truly, none, none of them are on the list. But Randy, I put this in because Randy's a dog lover, I and his beautiful dog Sophia I is, is sleeping right here at our feet. Going to do this. Too. Absolutely, that was gorgeous. given to me by Roger Waters. By the yes, way, yes, Roger Waters, generous yeah. gift. Yes. Um, she's beautiful. The last one died, you know. The, uh, so uh, Amanda Gamo, 51, of Bristol, England, required hospitalization after an unfortunate incident I with her cannot, chihuahua. I John, honestly. <laughs> Should I, I skip I, it? I think you have. I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe you should skip it. Okay. I'll skip it. It's a two girls, one cup situation, but it involves a dog. I mean, come it's on. It's not the dog's We're fault. a serious radio show, John. Uh, you're right. You are right. We're a serious radio show, and I will not talk about a dog with explosive diarrhea. <laughs> that would be John Bolton. That's a dog with explosive <laughs> diarrhea. Right. Okay, let's let's go on to uh, Atlanta. Aye, aye, aye. I will say I, I used to frequently, uh, my dog and I would both experience stomach trouble at the same time, and it always made me wonder if like something was happening that shouldn't have been happening. <laughs> we both ate the same bad thing somehow. Yeah. Neighbors of a guy, a rapper, by the name of Mercedes New, cool, also known as Shoddy Dread, in Atlanta, have taken to walking past his building with umbrellas. Rain or shine. Why? Because this guy <laughs> allegedly is in the habit of walking around naked on his balcony in this high rise and just taking a whiz off the balcony. Also, like, yeah, again, this has... this. There are laws. You can't just do. Yes, you yeah. can't do this. Yeah. You yeah. can't do this. Right. Um, neighbors actually videotaped him doing it. And uh, his statement when confronted by WSB TV was pretty funny. He says, I'm famous. I'm on TV, bruh. I didn't do this, man. No, I'm innocent. I promise I didn't do this. He was nonetheless arrested and is being held in the Fulton County Jail. Remember when the Dave Matthews Band uh, tour bus accidentally dumped a bunch of its, its like full Yikes. sewage holds they, as they were going over a bridge, I think, <sighs> in Chicago and dumped it on top of a boat full of like a sightseeing boat? <laughs> and oh, my got God. High. They got a contact high <laughs> off this the really, acid. This really happened. Uh, I, might have, I might be fuzzy on the details, but it was a thing that happened. I can't believe you're dragging us through this. <laughs> Sorry. You know what? I'll, st I'll slip some real news in right now. Mm -hmm. um, there was breaking news from CNN just a few minutes ago that Herschel Walker, the Republican Senate nominee in Georgia, has fired his political director. Why? Because it was the political director that leaked the story about the abortion. Really? His, or he's just saying that? His own political director. Wow. Uh-huh. Calls coming from inside the house. Oh, yeah. I mean, there have been uh, more comic accusations that this is going on in Met Met Oz's campaign as well, because right. their social media team keeps making John Fetterman look cool. <laughs> right. I think the latest was like, John Fetterman hates authority. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, that's roll, good. Man. That's a good thing. Yeah. 
Okay, here's Wait, one from, I'm sorry. Well, I have some other breaking news that oh, I think yeah. is interesting. Okay. Um, sorry to interrupt your news, news of the fecal this <laughs> week, honestly. Uh, New York Mayor Eric Adams has declared a state of emergency yes. over migration. And again, we have been talking about this. You have Antony Blinken going to Columbia, yep. talking about how we all have to work together to handle un- unprecedented, irregular migration. You have the Biden administration, really, from what I can see, not doing very much to publicly step in and assist some of these cities that have been getting these busloads of immigrants that Mm -hmm. have been orchestrated by the leadership in Texas and Arizona. Uh, And now you have Eric Adams saying uh, the migrant crisis in the city is going to cost a billion dollars this year. They have more people arriving than they can immediately accommodate. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said that once asylum seekers from today's buses are provided shelter, we would surpass the highest number of people in recorded history of our our city's shelter system and has said, um, you know, that this is unsustainable. And now, you know, I think that what this points to also, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, is just how threadbare and close to capacity all of our social safety net Mm -hmm. systems are Mm -hmm. all the time. Why is New York operating at like a 96% or whatever, um, Uh, occupancy rate for all of its emergency housing, right? You have a massive city. You should probably have a little bit more flexibility in all of these systems. But yeah, I don't see any signs that the the Democratic Party that controls our Congress right now and the Democratic mayors of these cities have concocted any kind of response. There's no program. That does anything to challenge this idea that uh, what we are experiencing is a crisis that is harming our country and that we need to, you know what I mean? There's no challenge to that. This is the same language that they're, they're using to talk about it all the time, that human beings coming over the border are, are a problem. They're a a drain and we can't handle them. And so these are going to be the kinds of responses that they're going to employ. There's no effort to sort of change the, actually change the drivers of this migration. There's no effort to reframe the way we talk about this, to understand that, you know, that migrants are doing important work here in the United States that wouldn't otherwise be done, that we need them to do this kind of work, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's pretty it's pretty disappointing. I think the response to the, I don't know, I think if I was going to make a prediction, um, I, I think we're going to see real hardening on immigration. Yeah, you know, I think you're they right. Could do, they could save a lot. Of, they could actually put a lot of money into this. Uh, just I'm looking in this city over the last eight weeks. There's so many homeless people. You yeah, see the tents incredible. and all these parks. Stop the prosecution of Julian Assange. You'd say $500 million because I bet you it's at that point right now what the CIA has spent, the NSA has spent, Department of Justice, State Department, all the money that they've put into this and what the Brits have put into it. Yes. Uh, if they would just take that money, yeah. you could solve the homeless problem here in yeah, this city alone. You could. Yeah. That's true. the priority. The priority is not to help out people over here. Right. But to hurt somebody over there. You know yes. what I mean? And yep. so if they would. You know, and uh, you're, you, you're from New York. There was a piece in the New York Times today that was emblematic of, of exactly this, this issue. The things that we should be spending money on. Uh, this woman wrote uh, about uh, taking her dog for a walk. She has a golden retriever. She lives in Park Slope, Brooklyn. They go to the park four times a day. And every once in a while, she'll see a, a homeless man uh, who's clearly mentally ill, shouting, swearing, going through the garbage, talking to people who aren't there. She avoids him. Well, this one day, a couple of weeks ago, she just couldn't avoid him. They were just at the same 
place at the same time. And he kind of flipped out and he made a, a motion like toward her. Well, the jo- the dog jumped to her defense and the guy carries a staff, it said. He whacked the woman with this staff and then he hit the dog and he hit the dog right on the tip of the nose and knocked one of its teeth oh, out. No. Yeah. So she ran from the park, took the dog to the vet, had to pull the rest of the tooth. The tooth was shattered. She didn't realize he had been hit twice. And he ended up having a perforated bowel from the second blow, and the dog died. Why are you telling me a story about a dog dying on Friday, John? I'm sorry. Why are you doing this? I know. Sorry. Sorry. I apologize to Sophia, too. So the point was she put all this on the app next door, right, and said, look, this is a problem. She kept calling the cops. The cops say it's not important enough for them to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to be – even if he were to be arrested, they would release him an hour or two later with this new, you know, no bail law in mm-hmm. New York. And so she said in this article, the disturbing part of all this was how, you know, this incredibly liberal enclave – of a liberal borough, Park Slope, Brooklyn, yeah. how people have been attacking her for being anti-mentally ill. Yeah. Like, it's not it's a complicated his issue. fault. It is. It's a complicated issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's a complicated issue. And, and you know, there are a lot of mentally ill people in New York City. And this goes back lot. to Reagan when he cut off. Absolutely. Uh, it goes back in, in yeah. 84, 83. They, and they, when they he emptied got, the mental hospitals. Yes, right. And so it continues today. There are so many mentally ill people on the yeah. street. There's no money for it, but nope. there is 30, 60, 80 billion dollars to give to Zelensky so he can sure. put the weapons on the black market and have... Uh, a lot of crime in the streets of Kiev. Sure. Okay, one last story of the weird. We're running short on time. Randy's got to go. All right. Ranjita Kundu of a town called Kodameda, India, has accused her husband of stealing and selling one of her kidneys four years ago. What? Yes. Did it in the middle of the night? Well, she said that she recently discovered, after visiting the doctor, that she has only one kidney, and she believes that she was... When she was treated for kidney stones four years ago, her husband secretly arranged, uh, along with his sister, for one of her kidneys to be removed and sold on the black market. She says, I was unaware of the whole incident. Uh, she even knows who he sold it to. Okay. A neighbor by the name of Asim Haldar. Uh, Kundu and her husband were married for 12 years before he took off with another woman. Eight months ago, Kundu said with help from his sister, he sold the organ to make up for dowry money that he believed he was still owed from marrying her. This is wow. the kind of news of the weird story and I like. Is, uh, this is this is what I like. This is the first one was okay. The 5,000 word uh, uh, <laughs> version of this. It's uh, there was a movie made about this like uh, 20 years ago about uh, organ uh, thievery people that were. Yeah, you end up in a bathtub full of ice and your kidney's missing. Yeah, yeah, Mm. I remember that. Mm. There was a film. It was a great film. I forgot what it was called, but I'll look it up. But uh, Well, the husband was actually arrested. Yeah, I mean, that's very scary. It actually happened. It's not like she's like, oh, my God, where'd my kidney go? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, but the thing is, is how can you, like, do you not notice the giant scar well, i don't know i guess if you don't the- know she had she was i got i don't know do they say this is how you treat kidney stones maybe maybe yeah. who knows 
I guess I'm the term auxorious would not apply to this guy. Right. All right. Right. I can finally use that term, auxorious. <laughs> o- overly fond of one's wife. All right. We're going to say goodbye to our friend Randy Critico. He is a longtime comedian and social justice activist, the former director of the William J. Kunstler Fund for Social Justice and host of the radio show Live on the Fly, which airs every Friday, Friday afternoon 3 from 3 to 4. Yes. Is and that right? Monday on Progressive Radio Network. Uh, 10 a.m. and uh, what else? Uh, and I got a podcast that you can get on Assange Countdown to Freedom.com. Excellent. Many times you have been on this. Yes, probably it's a good show. Yes. Fantastic. And, uh, well, thank you for joining us, Randy. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take a short break and come back. To political misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, culture, and entertainment, and all kinds of good things without the red and blue tilt. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here in the studio with my co-host Michelle Witte. The Supreme Court has begun its fall term, and there is already a major case pending related to freedom of speech. It's so important that even The Onion, the popular satirical newspaper and website, actually it's not a newspaper anymore since 2009, but it's a hilarious website. I rem- I've ha- I have picked up physical copies of The Onion Me in my too. lifetime, I will Love say. Love it. Yep, great paper. Well, even The Onion has filed an, uh, an amicus brief. It all started in 2016 when Anthony Novak, an amateur comic from Parma, Ohio, which is just outside Cleveland, was arrested and briefly jailed for creating a parody Facebook page made to look like the Facebook page of the Parma Police Department. Novak was acquitted at trial with the jury finding that the page was indeed a parody and that the Parma cops just couldn't take a joke. Novak filed a federal lawsuit, but it was dismissed with a federal judge citing qualified immunity. A circuit court judge, this is the appellate court, wrote that, quote, there is no recognized right to be free from retaliatory arrest, unquote. Retaliatory arrest. I I had to read that twice. Yeah. Just crazy. Well, we've told you this week about the trial here in Washington of several Oath Keepers leaders on charges of seditious conspiracy. Now a member of the Proud Boys has flipped and is ratting out that organization's leaders and members to the Justice Department. Is this the end of the road for political military militias, or are we only seeing the beginning? Major news outlets yesterday reported that the FBI believes that it has enough evidence to prosecute Hunter Biden on tax evasion charges and on a charge of making a false statement related to a handgun purchase. Of course, it's not the FBI's decision whether to prosecute. That's up to the U.S. attorney. But the U.S. attorney looking at the case in the federal district of Delaware is a Trump appointee. So we'll see what happens. And the Justice Department, according to the New York Times, believes that former President Trump has more classified documents in his possession than just those that were confiscated. It's unclear what the DOJ can do about its belief. Probably not much. Trump denies that he has any classified information in his possession. We're joined from Washington by Bruce Fine. Bruce is a former associate deputy attorney general of the United States and one of the country's leading constitutional scholars. Welcome back, Bruce. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for doing this. It seems to me, Bruce, that this Supreme Court case about the parody Facebook page is more 
a case about qualified immunity than it is about freedom of speech. The Supreme Court says that the police can do essentially anything they want and can get away with it because of qualified immunity. But one thing that you've taught me is that it's possible to sue individual police officers in their capacity as private citizens. Can you explain to our listeners what that means? Yes. um, I try to strip away the legal terminology here. Um, First of all, I do think that the Court of Appeals decision really created an issue beyond qualified immunity um, in this sense, uh, that the issue arises only when you're seeking damages, money, relief, not to prevent uh, in the future police from misbehaving. And when the court said, well, you don't have a right you know, to retaliatory uh, a prosecution, I think that's clearly contrary to Supreme Court decisions that I've litigated. I have one right now where the court says that it clearly violates due process to punish an individual for exercising their statutory or constitutional rights. So that's pretty clear statement it's called Goodman versus United States. Uh, and just think how terrible that would be. What deterrence of free speech would there be if for exercising your right here to parody the police department, you know, they can put you through the hell of a prosecution, mm-hmm. even if you're ultimately acquitted, you have the stigma, you have the cost, you have the anxiety, et cetera, things like that. Now, one of the things you have to remember, too, in terms of the procedural posture, the Supreme Court reverses uh, when they take cases below, because remember, they are not required to take a case. They reverse right. cases that they take, you know, like three quarters, sometimes 80% of the time. So the court would not have taken this case unless at least four justices thought it was wrongly decided below. But I think the issue of qualified immunity goes beyond this particular case. The gist of the current standard is unless the police misbehave in a way that violates clearly established constitutional rights mm. that have been announced by specific Supreme Court decisions creating, you know, addressing virtually identical facts, you know, you can't get damaged. Now, try to think about how that doctrine would apply, you know, to an ordinary citizen. Uh, a citizen would have been, if that doctrine applied citizen, okay, if you have had a, it wasn't clearly a violation of a tax law of this or that. When you had a violation, you couldn't be exposed to a, you know, a penalty. Maybe you had to pay up. Uh, but unless it was a, you as a citizen violated something that was clearly and flagrantly in violation of the law, no, they couldn't zap you for damages. That never happens, right? If you, you have to pay penalties, the IRS file taxes, you should have paid X, Y, Z. There's no good faith exception. And the argument being made and has been made from the outset for the qualified exception, the qualified immunity exception is, well, we don't want to deter and frighten the government, you know, from aggressive enforcement of the laws. Uh, Well, that's true, but we don't want to encourage them to be so aggressive that you're violating the laws yourself. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows the government can buy liability insurance, like a lot of companies. So if they want to protect their from paying damages, just buy a liability insurance. Right. So far as it causes the government to skate a little bit further from the law than it ought to be, well, I call that protecting liberty. I'd rather overprotect liberty than indulge violations of law as long as they were, you know, clearly and flagrantly bad. Uh, And now you may recall also after the 
the George Floyd issue. Uh, various proposals uh, have been flirted in both the, the state legislatures and Congress to water down or end this qualified immunity mm-hmm. uh, standard, at least for police officers. It hadn't enacted, wasn't passed in any of these cases so far. The police unions are very strong, but it surely is worthy of, of reexamination here. Well, let me ask you about that, because that's a great segue into this next question. I, I was going to ask if you could explain to us the the legal thinking behind the qualified immunity doctrine. The Supreme Court's, I'm sorry, the circuit court's position in this case that there is no recognized right to be free from retaliatory arrest sounds positively fascist to me. How did we arrive at qualified immunity? It's It's really not that old of a doctrine, is it? Well, it goes back to common law, uh, you know, at least uh, the first time you had qualified immunity in the modern era was 1967, where they said when Congress enacted um, the civil rights statutes, this is the Ku Klux Klan Act, they intended to adopt, you know, common law immunities. Uh, so it's a statutory immunity. It's not one that's ingrained in the Constitution. Congress could change it tomorrow. Could uh-huh. Change it uh, it's, not, it's not a constitutional immunity. Uh, and like I say, the reason for the doctrine is to try to encourage aggressive enforcement of the law, even if it means you go over the line. I think that's that's a, an obtuse way to think about the law in a country that's supposed to be celebrating liberty rather than force and domination. If you want to deter people from going close to the line of violating your rights, what is bad about that? Uh, now, if you you could say, well, why don't we why don't we have a test? Because the argument being made by the proponents of the doctrine are, well, you know, you'd have all these laws uh, being committed with impunity and the police would be so reticent, you know, they wouldn't arrest anybody, they wouldn't do this or that, the crime rate would go out of sight. But why don't we do a test? Why don't we eliminate qualified immunity and for, and for at least one year, two years, and see what the crime rate looks like? You know, it, it was the same kind of thing that was said you know, with Miranda versus Arizona. Well, you know, if you don't have Miranda, if, if you give them Miranda rights, you know, what's going to happen is the crime's going to soar right through the stratosphere. But it didn't happen. Most everybody waves their Miranda rights anyway, and it's right. not all that big of a barrier. So really, put the, push the because the doctrine is built upon just hypotheticals. It's assumption. It's never been tested in the real world, which is what you want to have the, uh, the law grounded in. Yes, indeed. We've heard a lot in the past 22 months about groups like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters. They're far-right, pro-Second Amendment, anti-federal government militias. Uh, They were involved in the January 6th insurrection up to their necks, and now members are beginning to flip on one another. Most of the January 6th rioters who have either pleaded guilty or have been found guilty have been given relatively light sentences. That's not the case so far with these militia members. Now that some members are prepared to testify against others, what do you expect to happen with these groups? Do you think that there'll be a factor in any way in in politics in 2024? Or do you think this is the beginning of the end for them? Well, it can be uh, somewhat in between. Number one, there have been stiff sentences, four, five, six, seven years for some of those who committed uh, more of the uh, egregious violence mm-hmm. within the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, I wouldn't say that's uniform. You're talking to your member about a universe right now Close to 300 people have found guilty either through trials or through uh, uh, or through guilty pleas. Um, secondly, with regard to the the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, I fully expect them to be convicted. Uh, this idea that <laughs> with all their language, oh, they were just 
kind of just waiting for the Insurrection Act and planning with weapons that it would be um, it would be invoked by President Trump. Well, one, the Insurrection Act was never uh, invoked by Mr. Trump. So if you were waiting for the Insurrection Act, why didn't you just sit and stand idly by until it was invoked, which it never was? Um, I don't I think that uh, the uh, all of the, the rhetoric and all of the mindset of these defendants is such that would c- convince any jury. Yes, they were mm-hmm. going to resort to violence. They thought they were involved like the Minutemen in Lexington and Concord in 1776. Uh, and that the, the, a federal government, which gave them every opportunity in the world to exercise free speech, to vote, to argue all their cases in court if they thought there was fraud. They had complete representation. They had, unlike our, our colonists in 1776 in the British Parliament, they had every peaceful avenue of redress available to them, known to mankind. And they resorted to violence. I don't think that's going to go over well with a jury. Uh, and I do believe that they'll be convicted. I don't believe, however, that it's really the beginning of the end, because many of these people thrive off of I mean, actually staying in jail, uh, right. thrive off of going to the uh, the end point, because uh, that's they're, they're, I think, literally delusional. Uh, so then as long as Mr. Trump, uh, who's there, uh, kind of like uh, their cult leader, uh, to give them some kind of hope, uh, he may run again in 2024. But his latest um, uh, legal problems may derail that effort. Uh, they're not going to go away. Mm. This is a pathological group uh, that simple prison sentences, they may turn them into, in their own minds, heroes, you know, like the Clive Bundys or whatever. Right. Uh, now, that doesn't mean some will get uh, 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 deterred. They don't, they're not so crazy that they want to spend their lives in prison. But this phenomenon does not go away until I think we eradicate Mr. Trump from our political universe. Bruce, Hunter Biden can't seem to stay out of the news. And you know what's funny? Well, in so, he can't seem to stay out of some papers and he can't seem to get into others <laughs> is true. what I might qualify and, that as. And, and if you only read the New York Post, you have to ask, is every picture of, of Hunter Biden a nude? Right. I mean, it's crazy, but at least in the New York Post, every picture they today, they had him holding the gun and he was, but naked, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the FBI initially began investigating his business dealings in Ukraine and China a long time ago. We've all known that. But what they've apparently found is evidence that Hunter Biden committed tax fraud and that he allegedly made a false statement on a form that he filled out when he purchased a handgun. We know from the New York Times that the FBI believes this is enough to charge him with at least two felonies. But it's the U.S. attorney who makes decisions on charges, not the FBI. The U.S. attorney for the District of Delaware is a Trump appointee. Does that matter in your view? Do politics play a role in who gets charged with a federal crime? John, (laughs) I guarantee you, having worked at the department, at this level, there is no way in the world that the U.S. attorney in Delaware is making the final decision. I can guarantee you the final decision will be made by Attorney General Merritt Garland. Now, the U.S. attorney may have a recommendation to make, but at this level, there is no way that that power is delegated to U.S. attorneys. Um, now, you ask, okay, are politics involved in, um, uh, in prosecutions uh, in this one? Listen, politics are involved in virtually every prosecution. Uh, the law enforcement resources are limited, 
And you've got to make a political decision, policy decision at the outset. Who do you investigate and why? And what kind of crimes are you going to put on a high priority or low priority? So in some sense, every prosecution has a political element to them because we don't prosecute all violations. We can't possibly do it. We don't have and we're not going to spend, you know, $100 billion on an FBI, you know, with 200,000 uh, FBI agents. Right. Uh, so there's this, this idea that, that you can eliminate politics from law enforcement is ridiculous on its face. Huh. Now, obviously, when you have high profile characters uh, like Hunter Biden, uh, the argument is, well, it becomes more political than otherwise. Maybe a little. But heck, I lived through Watergate, you know, where the Watergate cover up cases, political cases. Yep. Well, you could argue that, but hell, they got, excuse my vulgarity, they, they clearly were flagrantly involved in, uh, in, in seeking to corrupt and, and cover up justice and commit perjury. So you commit a crime, is that the crimes weren't political crimes. Obstruction of justice applies across the board to all sorts of uh, uh, proceedings that are trying to be thwarted uh, by illicit means. Uh, so I don't think this particular case with regard to Hunter Biden uh, you know, was concocted for political reasons. I think he may have been focused upon simply because, and, and I think it's uh, it's actually important that those who are most prominent, uh, if we want to have even-handed justice and not uh, justice for the poor and, and, and impunity for the rich, that those who have uh, prominent figures, uh, they don't escape the law. Uh, and that doesn't mean necessarily they're guilty or prosecute them, but that means if you have credible evidence of a violation, you investigate. Uh, in mm-hmm. a particular case, we don't know right now, since we don't have it in the public domain indictment, you know, whether this is a concocted case and the jury's going to find him you know, guilty. But, but all I'm saying is that even if the jury found him guilty and the evidence is overwhelming, was it still a political case? Yeah, because the reason why they probably focused on him because there's high visibility. And I don't right. think that there's anything necessarily wrong with it. You're going to have to make choices anyway. You're going to have to have priorities anyway in law enforcement. We can't prosecute crime. Don't have the ability to do that. Bruce, the last time you were on the show, we talked about Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Ginny Thomas spoke privately with the January 6th committee last week, and she repeated the lie that Donald Trump had the election stolen from him. Uh, now observers are questioning whether Clarence Thomas knew of his wife's actions to stop the counting of electoral votes. We know little about exactly what Clarence Thomas did or didn't do or did or didn't know. Um, you know the Thomases. Do you believe that Clarence Thomas could be in trouble for his wife's actions? I don't think that there's vicarious liability, you know, in the sense that you know, the husband is responsible for the conduct of the wife. And I, it, it's too, listen, I've met Clarence Thomas before. I've had talked to him. I had met, uh, but it's too, to say that I know them, you know, in terms of the ability to deduce, you know, how intimate the relations are, that would be a wrong deduction. Uh, to just know somebody, and anybody who's married know every marriage is unique. You never know what the dynamics are. I don't know whether she talked to him or didn't talk to him. You know, about something like this. It's been a long time since I had anything to do with them. Um, but surely, as a matter of law, you, you can't hold Clarence Thomas legally accountable for what his wife does. Now, this that's different than if there's actual collusion and there's communications or whatever. Mm-hmm. It'd be very difficult to get at since there's marital privilege uh, in this particular situation. Um, now, that obviously is a different question than whether or not, in light of all the circumstances, you know, if there are these cases that seem to be headed for the Supreme Court again, 
uh, it would be judicious for Clarence Thomas to recuse himself. That doesn't mean that he actually is implicated in any wrongdoing, because the standard for a recusal is if it creates an appearance of impropriety, mm-hmm. then you should recuse yourself. Now, in the past, uh, he's rather been, Justice Thomas has not been inclined to recuse himself. Um, in this case, you know, I think he would be advised, uh, well advised to recuse himself. Uh, and I think, that, again, that's not admitting wrongdoing, but, you know, you have to, like they say, justice like Caesar's wife should be above suspicion. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for joining us, Bruce Fine. Bruce is a former Associate Deputy Attorney General of the United States, and he is one of our country's leading constitutional scholars. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll take one more break, and we'll come back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. So I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that Herschel Walker's political director mm-hmm. uh, uh, was fired. He didn't He didn't resign. Yep. It's saying that the campaign has cut all ties with political director uh, Taylor Crow, who previously had been the political director on ex-GOP Senator David Perdue's failed bid for Georgia governor. Two people familiar with the matter say Crow was fired after suspected leaking to members of the media that Herschel Walker paid for his significant other's abortion. Um, That story was nothing more than a rumor that had been bubbling around for mm-hmm. years. Not only did he apparently confirm it, but the former girlfriend provided her receipt from the abortion, a photocopy of the check that Herschel Walker wrote to reimburse her for the abortion and the get well card that he sent her. I mean, you know what I'm looking up now mm. this is what happened to David Perdue's campaign. Oh, he got crushed. Yeah, but... Were there any leaks? Is it a good question? Is this is this, this good political question. director? Uh, you know, a mole. Is this right. he's a he's a sleeper cell, a democratic sleeper cell inside uh, the Republican political consulting machine. You know, and another thing too is Herschel Walker's son, Christian Walker. You know, we've we've kind of poked fun at Christian Walker a couple of times over the last year or so. Um, he's he's very vocal, mm-hmm. right? Um, strongly pro-Trump, MAGA, he wears the hat, good-looking guy, he's got hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. And in the beginning of the campaign, everybody thought he would take on a role in the campaign, some sort of a spokesman role. He decided not to do that, but made strongly supportive uh, uh, videos of his father that ran on social media. Okay. Now he's done a complete 180 yeah, and is attacking his father, saying he was a, a terrible dad. He was out of touch. He didn't send child support. Mm-hmm. He beat up his mom. He, I mean, all these terrible things we've heard about Herschel Walker. Now they're coming from his son. So this is yep. a dramatic turnaround three weeks before the election. 
I do think uh, the last I saw also on that election is that Warnock was pretty comfortably ahead before yes. these uh, abortion, before the latest Yeah, before, before the abortion thing, Warnock was ahead five or six percentage points. Now he's ahead by 10 or 12. Yeah. So yeah. it looks like Herschel Walker's going to lose. I have some breaking news Ooh. here. Uh, the Uvalde uh, School uh. District is suspending police activities and the entire Uvalde School District Police Department has been placed on leave. The entire school district police yeah. department. This is uh, it's, it, a local reporter wow. has been covering this story steadily, you know, ever since the horrible mass shooting back in May. Uh, but yeah, says this is this is something parents have been demanding since May. Yeah. Um, you know, first the it was the chief that got suspended, then somebody else had gotten suspended, and now it's the um, the entire department. And there was a little kerfuffle about this yesterday that that one of the um one of the police officers, a woman who was in the in the uh school, I don't know if she was going to be the the new chief or if she's going to be the the school resource, I hate that word resource officer, that yeah. term rather. Um but parents, here it is. You've all the School district fires officer after CNN identifies her as trooper under under investigation for her response to the massacre. She was one of the cops who stayed outside while the shooting was going on because she was afraid to go in. Yeah. And now they're like, oh, she should work inside the school. (laughs) What are you going to do, run outside if something bad happens? So they fired her. I have another. Hey, here's a topic we haven't talked about in a while. COVID. Right. I remember COVID. There's a front page story here on the Washington Post that says few Americans get new booster shots ahead of projected winter surge. And also uh, elsewhere, I saw headlines saying Europe might be uh, experiencing the beginning of a winter COVID surge. But um, the story is, you know, the the sort of the context for the story is that uh, federal officials have spent the last year urging Americans to get booster shots to bolster their protection, blah, blah, blah. I don't know, man. When was the last time you felt urged to get a booster shot? I will admit, I sort of forgot about them. Yeah. And then I've put it I, out of my I, mind. I thought, oh, yeah, I'll go get a booster. I, I like called a pharmacy to see that you can't make an appointment. You have to do it as a walk in. And then I forgot uh. about it again. But like. I don't know. It doesn't it, it it doesn't seem as though I'm not hearing a lot of public service announcements about Nothing. it. I no. haven't been seeing a lot of efforts to even, you know, they have a new vaccine, the army vaccine that they were working on that uses uh, traditional technology or, you know, older technology. It's not the mRNA. Mm-hmm tech stuff. I think it's a Novavax. And they were really uh, hoping right. that this would help assuage people's fears about, you know, an mRNA, which makes some people nervous. So they're like, here's an, uh, yet another option for a COVID vaccine that's made in a traditional way that past vaccines that you've been comfortable with have been made, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't see a big sort of PR rollout for that or the media did not latch on to it and, and present it. But yeah. No, like, you're right. I'm not surprised there that a lot of people have gotten COVID boosters because I just don't feel as though we've been yeah. asked to. And also, I don't know, it hasn't necessarily been made that, I guess not made that easy. Now you just have to go and do it yourself like the flu shot. Right. And I'm not very good about doing that. We only have a minute or two left, but I wanted to say something really uh, quickly about about a race in Southern California, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's race. Oh. Oh, it's ugly. Yeah. Nasty. So the sheriff uh, Villanueva, mm-hmm. uh, not, like 
Bad dude. Bad. Bad dude. Bad dude. And he ran as a progressive he reformist. He's a Sanders right? fan. Bernie right. Sanders. Bernie guy. Sanders. Well, it turned out he was a Trump Republican just pretending to be a progressive. So he wins four years ago and then just purges all of his enemies, mm-hmm. right? And is as corrupt as the day is long. Well, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department Inspector General has been investigating him. And now the investigation is getting to the point where, like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff wrong with this guy. He's corrupt and he's broken the law and he he's uh, used political influence against his enemies. Now the sheriff has banned the inspector general from all department facilities. I mean, there's been a story that we had been hoping to have a guest on to talk about, about the retaliation by police in L.A. County against the oversight, the police oversight board that is supposed to be watching them. I have been hoping to get someone from California to come on and talk to us, but this has been unfolding over the past week. So, yeah, the tenure of Villanueva has been... Absolutely scandalous. Uh, we have 10 seconds left. Did you know Roger Waters was just on the Joe Rogan show? Yeah, yesterday. That's a pretty big platform I'll say. for uh, someone who has the political views of Roger Waters. Yes, I was impressed on yeah. both sides. Interesting. Yeah, good for Roger. Yeah. Well, that's it. We're going to leave we're it done. there. We had a we had an exciting day today. <laughs> we did. We had, a, we had a little bit of a loosey-goosey day today. We're going to be back in ship shape on Tuesday. I promise you that. That's right. Thanks to everybody who came in for the show. Uh, thanks to all our producers and engineers. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. <laughs>